Hi everyone, Lucy Kippist here. I'm the editor of Flying Solo and this episode of our podcast is brought to you by Yellow. From doing the books to doing it all, running your own business is a huge task. Take a load off with Yellow. From a website that stands out on Google to social ads that get you found, Yellow can grow your business online while you're busy growing your business. Plus, right now, Yellow can also help you take a holiday. Earn up to 60,000 Qantas points for your business across a range of eligible Yellow digital marketing solutions. Head to yellow.com.au to get started. Lisa Forrest is a name recognisable to many of us. She became a household name when she captained the Australian swimming team at the 1980 Moscow Olympics. Since then, she's gone on to do many things, including hosting her own national sports program, becoming an actor, a broadcast journalist with the ABC, and an author. She joins us today to speak about her latest and very special book, Glide. Lisa, welcome to our Flying Solo podcast. Thanks, Lucy. It's lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Now, as careers go, yours has been extraordinarily varied, (laughs) to say the least, Um, which is in part what makes the subject you're exploring in your book, Glide, even more intriguing to me. So Glide is essentially about your own journey inward to get to the bottom of a very personal question that actually is one that plagues many of us, which is essentially Why does it feel like no matter what I do, it's never enough for that critical voice inside my head? Mm. Um, You wrote this wonderful quote for the book that I'm going to read out here and then we'll get stuck into the questions. Mm. Um, You said, it's my hope that by the end of this book, I will have convinced you that a combination of mindfulness, self-compassion and compassion is all you need to get on your own side and to help others get on theirs. And when we can all do that, we'll glide through life's challenges. What a wonderful quote. So you wrote this book with your latest career hat on, and that's of a mindfulness coach. What do you think led you on this particular path? Well, pain is what led me there. The the last book that I wrote was a teenage novel. It was my third teenage novel. It was a fantasy novel set in the circus. I thought I had plenty of experience writing and plus plenty of experience at you know, doing things, what things well in my life. So, but it took me down this, oh, just spiraling down into these black holes of doubt and just caused me no end of trouble. And also, you know, likewise, my family, my husband and son, like it was just torture for everybody. And, you know, I had a hint that, that this had been happening for a long time because back when I was 18, I won gold medals at my second Commonwealth Games and I'd done exactly the same thing. And I told journalists, when I won my first gold medal in the 100 backstroke there, that I nearly didn't make it to the Games because I'd struggled with motivation due to trouble with my thinking. And I knew I had trouble with my thinking because Rocky Three had been released in the cinemas just about three weeks before the Commonwealth Games trials, and he changed my thinking. But I didn't know how he did it, so he didn't make it, I couldn't make it permanent. And so at 48, after three decades of pain, I thought, I'm going to sort out this trouble with my thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, I mean, it is amazing that you had the self-awareness to do that because a lot of us could just keep going and not question why or where that was coming from. Look, the, the, the advantage of deciding at eight years old that you're going to go to the Olympic Games, and I'd watched my heroes, Shane Gould and Gail Neal and Bev Whitfield, in 1972 at the Munich Games, and I decided I wanted to do that too. And so when you decide something like that, you have an awareness practice because you are suddenly aware of, 
you know, what you're doing and whether it's helping you to get better and what other people do to get better. And so you're paying attention, which is really what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is awareness, right? But what I did not know what to do with what I was aware of. So, yeah, I was aware in the um, final before the Olympic Games, sitting in the ready room before the 200 backstroke, I was aware that I had this voice in my head that suddenly said, I don't know how to do this. And it was shocking and betraying. And I was so furious because I was supposed to be thinking positive. Back then there was no psychology, right? So it was just obvious, mm. have positive thoughts rather than negative ones. So what did it mean about me that I had this negative thought at this moment that I really wanted to enjoy and to be part of because I'd dreamed about it for years. So I had a lot of awareness and I didn't know what to do with it. And what also I think um, happened was that, like most of us, I think, I thought that they were faults with me. And what mindfulness gave me was this beautiful framework um, where I realized that actually, well, what the Buddha taught really, um, even though I didn't come to it from a Buddhist um, avenue, I came through to mindfulness um, via mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was a secular eight-week program where they don't talk about Buddhism. But there is a framework that he observed two and a half thousand years ago and said, this is what goes on in the mind. And so I realized that I wasn't at fault. It was just me being human. And if I could actually empathize with the, with the fact that, you know, we all make mistakes, that we're not perfect, that sometimes we feel scared in the Olympic final when we don't want to, but we can empathize with that and then take care of ourselves, that gave me this wonderful framework to work with and I could stop beating myself up and actually um, just start taking care of myself in the proper way. Mm. And so... So, I mean, were you doing a lot of reading at that time? Obviously, there wasn't such a thing as mindfulness coach at that time. So, who was giving you instruction no, well, on mindfulness? So, this was back in 2013. And when I decided I would do something about the trouble with my thinking, I started with a life coaching course. I signed up to a life coaching course because there was so little psychology in my day. I thought, oh, look, there's much more modern stuff now. I'll just, I'll just do the life coaching course and I'll coach myself out of this funk. And uh, what I discovered, of course, through doing the course and then because I started, you know, as part of the course, you had to coach other people. Um, and I realized that everybody had this, you know, inner critic. I called mine Miss Never Enough. Um, and all of us have this Mr. and Miss Never Enough um, in our minds. So, wow, if I could work out the source of mine is never enough. Maybe it would help others. And through that course, I was uh, invited to, it was a non-compulsory webinar on something called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so I signed up. Look, I was not a person at all to believe in meditation. I'm a doer, right? You know, I, I don't want to sit around, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, on a hilltop eating mung beans or whatever. And I was really skeptical. And just from the first, um, I I, I listened to this webinar. I didn't understand it, but I wrote down this name, John Kabat-Zinn, and I went to audible.com and thought, oh, maybe this John Kabat-Zinn has got a book I can, <laughs> I can read and maybe I'll understand it a bit better. And I downloaded the only one that wasn't abridged called Adventures in Mindfulness, and at Chapter 3 there was a, a guided breath meditation and I decided I'd listen to this book on my morning walk. So I did. Uh, it took me a few months before I actually sat down for a breath meditation. But on the first, literally the first morning I did this walk, I listened to this meditation as I was walking. And he said, let's focus on the breath. And you might be thinking now, okay, this is good. I'm on my breath. I can feel it. And he said, that's great, but that's a thought. So you can let go of that and come back to the breath. And I was like, what? 
what? I can let go of a thought. I don't have to follow every single thought in my mind. And that was just like liberation for me. And I was like, we all need to know about this. <laughs> and so that's why yes. I wrote the book. <laughs> and, we, and we still all need to know about this. And I mean, so we, we are focusing a lot about uh, well-being here at Flying Solo and in fact, it's just the, the part of our, our new content hub for the site because we feel like it's that important. What do you think mindfulness can then bring to enhance our well-being on a daily basis? And if we are not into meditation, as you've just said that you weren't either, what are some of the ways that we can start practicing that? The beauty of mindfulness, as I said, is that it's based in this um, Buddhist philosophy that's been around for such a long time, you know, thousands of years. And um, as many people say, Buddhism isn't um, something you believe in, it's something you do. And he even said there was a word that he used back then, ehi pasako, I think is the Pali word for it. See for yourself. Just see for yourself what I'm talking about. You know, if you focus on um, the negative thoughts all the time and you allow those thoughts to be prominent in your mind, then that becomes the inclination of the mind. If you decide to cultivate um, positive thoughts, now that's not to say, as I've already said, that positive negative thoughts won't come in, um, but you can let those go, come back to the present moment through the senses through what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're tasting, what you're smelling, the breath, and you can then, you'll find that the thoughts will can come, can come and go and you can decide which ones to follow and which ones to let go of. Um, I think also the beauty of mindfulness when it comes to well-being is that we call it mindfulness, but I mean, there's even a chapter in my book where I ask mindfulness or bodyfulness. And what I didn't understand when it came to the trouble with my thinking was that my body is this beautiful, wonderful sensory, you know, below the neck, I've got this whole body that's sensing the world <laughs> and it's and it's out there, it's paying attention to the world in a precognitive way and it is always just looking around and the question it's asking, three questions essentially, am I safe, am I resourced, am I connected, right? And if at any point we sense that we're not safe, that we're feeling threatened, then our stress hormones will start to be activated. And if we're not paying attention, if we don't have awareness of what's going on in the body, then we will suddenly, we use words, we use descriptions, you know, we flip our lid, we blow our stack, we, we, I just wasn't myself. That's because the soothing system, that system that says, am I connected has gone offline and we're suddenly operating only on emotion. And so that for me was the second understanding. I, I paid no attention to what was below my body and below my neck, I should say. I was all in my head. And yet when you drop into the body and just allow yourself to connect with what you're feeling, then you can um, then you can calm and soothe and settle yourself. Like I had a beautiful one a couple of weeks ago and it was in relation to everything that was happening with, um, you know, the uh, COVID-19 and, and the way that we were all feeling. And I had this sensation in the body. It was unpleasant. I couldn't name what it was, but it was just, it was contracted. It was just unpleasant. And I just thought, I was like, okay, what's going on here? And the thought came into my mind, I feel like I'm being stalked. Mm. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm being stalked. But that was the story that my mind wanted to tell about the sensations that I was feeling in my body. And so as a mindfulness and also um, someone who practices compassion as well, I could just actually, you know, take a deep breath, 
um, reassure myself that I wasn't being stalked, <laughs> that I was doing all the right things when it came to, you know, looking, taking care of ourselves, washing our hands, giving people space, um, and doing all of those sensible things that we've been asked to do. And just let that thought go and let the body sensations go. Hmm. So I think that's how it helps with well-being. It just brings awareness to what we're doing and to how we're actually perceiving every single moment. Now, when you say, are there other ways that I can do it besides sitting down and focusing on the breath? Yes. Um, the beauty of, of formal practice is that it's essentially training. You know, it's like, oh, I start to understand just how often my mind wants to entertain itself elsewhere other than stay on the breath. So our, our mm. concentration is so scattered at the moment. Um, but yes, you could start with, um, you know, waking up. We call it waking up, but do we actually spend a moment just in bed when we wake up, lying down, feeling the sheets, feeling the bed, um, tuning into what's happening in the body, just taking a breath or we up out of bed straight away and into the day. So you could start right there, just tuning into the sensations, just one breath. You could pay attention to rather than reading the news and eating your breakfast or drinking your coffee, you could just set aside everything else and just taste your food and actually just swallow your food. In Thich Nhat Hanh's book, um, Miracle of Mindfulness, he describes a friend eating a tangerine and describing the problems at work. And he says, mm. was he eating the tangerine or was he eating his problems? You know, So, <laughs> so there's true. a lot going on at the moment. So just, <laughs> yeah, so should we just sit down and actually taste our food? Notice that the mind will wander, come back to the taste of the food. Um, shower. Can we be in the shower and just feel the sensations of water, you know, in coming out of the tap and feel gratitude for the fact that we've got warm, clean water coming out of our tap? So it's, it's almost like putting a step in before your thoughts. It's almost like saying, you know, if you're someone who, in example, gets really frustrated with a problem they're trying to, you know, solve in their business on a particular day and stands in front of the fridge and sort of eats till their brain starts working again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just sort of mind, mindlessly. <laughs> totally. Eating. I do that all and the time like, when I'm hey, writing I'm, a book. Don't worry. Yes, exactly. I, it was, yes, it's obviously a personal weakness, an emotional eater. But, yeah, you're eating and then suddenly you're like, hang on, this is really not, I still haven't solved anything, but I feel better. So it's almost like putting a barrier in between that deluge of thought and just acknowledging that, okay, I am about to get really freaked out about this problem. I am freaking out. So before I freak out, I'm just going to take a moment. And it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but I think what you're saying is it puts you in a better state of mind to receive a solution. Totally. And, uh, yes, if we're thinking and suddenly standing in front of the um, fridge looking for something to eat, um, and we're away from the computer, for instance, if I'm writing um, a book, then it means that we've missed the signs from the brain, from the body <laughs> that are going, oh, no, I don't know how to do this, and we're just connected to the thought. So, yes, Viktor Frankl has a beautiful quote, um, and it's that uh, there is a space between stimulus and response. I'm paraphrasing here, but there's a space between stimulus and response. In that space, we have um, the ability to choose, and in that choice is our freedom and our growth. So what mindfulness mm. cultivates is the space between the stimulus and, you know, the precognitive appraisal that our body has made and the way that we react. So we're either reacting without any awareness or we're responding to, oh, what this moment is presenting. Um, and we're understanding, and we haven't even talked about emotions yet. In many ways, this is about emotional health. 
that, um, wow, we are beautiful, <laughs> emotional instrument. And to tune into what we're feeling emotionally and to be able to say, oh, it's okay. We're all right. We're, we can get through this. You know, offer those beautiful, soothing words. I, I mean, I talk about in my book, I talk about the DY ladies and when I first landed, um, at the pool, um, down at the rock pool at DY for my first swim. And, you know, I was a teary kid and I burst into tears on the blocks. Um, and that 25 meter line looked too far away. And the thing that the DY ladies did immediately was put an older girl in the water right in front of me. And she gave me a big grin and said, come on, sweetheart, you can do this. So the ability for us to actually do that for ourselves, to feel what we're mm-hmm. feeling. Oh, as I said before, that discomfort. Oh, I feel like I'm being stalked. Oh. Come on, sweetheart. It's okay. You're not being stalked. Take a deep breath and let's, you know, continue. So acknowledge the feeling, but then at the same time, acknowledge it doesn't have to be a block to action. It's sort of like, yep, acknowledge that feeling that I'm, I'm going to not be able to move forward and move forward. Well, the turning toward what we're feeling is counterintuitive to everything that we're taught, and it's also counterintuitive to the nervous system. The nervous system, uh, the second foundation of mindfulness that the um, the wise fellow, uh, the Buddha, observed back then a long time ago, is that we have a nervous system. Well, he might not have called it that, but it's um where 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 we crave pleasant and we do everything we can to avoid unpleasant. And the moment we're feeling unpleasant, we'll you know, we've got a million things that we do to try to avoid feeling the anxiety or the fear or the, the anger. Um, you know, we've talked about standing in front of a fridge, <laughs> but there's a million ways getting a glass of wine, you know, um, overspending at the shops, um, panicking in some other way, yelling at our loved ones. Um, and the, the training in mindfulness and in compassion is to turn towards that feeling because while it's, while we're avoiding it, it's staying locked in our body and we're acting out in other ways. So the capacity to actually go, oh, to soothe yourself in that moment is really, is really skillful. And, um, it's the, you know, it is the, the basis, I think. We're t- we talk about mental health, but it's the, the basis of emotional health. Um, and it goes against also if you've, you know, if you've trained like I did, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So it just doesn't seem to be tough to go, oh, it's okay, sweetheart. We can do this. What's tough is to say, come on, don't be ridiculous. You're okay. It's stupid to be feeling like that. Um, yeah, you know, the judgment yeah. that comes in. I mean, and we're feeling it in the air right now. The, the judgment of, you know, a group of people who are scared are buying a lot of toilet paper. And then there's another group of people who are judging that fear. And yet the, the, the judgment is also part of the fear because those people aren't behaving in the way that we want them to in order to maintain, you know, deal with this problem. So everybody's mm-hmm. judging as opposed to finding compassion for Oh, this fear that we're all feeling and this, um, this uncertainty. Um, and, you know, we're doing everything we can to try to make things certain again. You know, we're wondering how long it will last. And, you know, the Buddhists would say, well, uncertainty is actually reality and <laughs> certainty is just an, an illusion that we try to create for ourselves. So can we, can we be kind to ourselves in the uncertainty and still keep operating in a very common sense way and kind way? So. That where you're talking there about the, the being kind to yourself and speaking to yourself in that gentle voice when you can feel your anxiety starting to flare, however that looks for you, that's essentially what you mean when you write in the book about self-compassion. That's is that right? Definitely, that's and what, about getting yeah. on your own side. Yes, yes, because that I is self-compassion. About that. I love that phrasing. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and I thought I was getting on my own side by those thoughts of 
come on, get tough, you know, don't be so stupid. Of course you can handle this. You've done this before. And of course it was just what those thoughts do is just actually keep um, uh, fueling the threat drive system and the, you know, the adrenaline and the cortisol in the system. Um, yeah. And that's the last thing we want to do. So understand there's a beautiful Buddhist story um, called the arrow. And the idea is that um, the, when an arrow hits a warrior in the forest, then, of course, it's painful in the part of the body where the arrow goes. But if another arrow was to hit the Buddha, hit the warrior in that same place, then the pain would be a thousand times more. And what that's a sort of metaphor for is that we are all feeling pain. It may well be that, yeah, you're not writing the book and it's not as coming out as well as you would like it to be or you're not, your business is not going as well as you would want it to be or right now we're wondering how we're going to keep a business going. That is the pain. So feeling that first is the uh, turning towards that is the skill without adding to the, it with the extra thoughts. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen in six months time? Oh my goodness, what's going to happen in 24 hours time? Fair enough. But the, the, the capacity in this particular moment to go, I'm feeling this, but I'm not going to turn it into, um, an even worse problem by, by turning over those thoughts and flooding my system with cortisol. That's the skill. And it's a trainable skill. That's the thing. It's, it's a trainable skill. Um, it's not something, I guess, that people want to necessarily hear because, if we are, I mean, that's the other weird thing. If we're really used to running on anxiety, and I've had people in my classes do this, quite often, you know, there's been a moment when they're at university perhaps and they left everything to the last moment and they did really well in the test. You know, they sort of crammed and did really well and so they believe that anxiety is it helps to fuel them get better, helps, helps them to be good and sharp and onto it. But, of course, mm. in the years since, there's been many times when that hasn't worked <laughs> but it's very difficult to let go of that belief that you need it you need it because that one time it worked i was the opposite whereas i'd had these really peak experiences when i was calm and happy and joyful whether it was swimming for australia or interviewing somebody so i was looking for that how do i make that permanent i wasn't looking for the other because you know when i turned myself inside out in that ready room before the olympic final i slipped at the start <laughs> so anxiety did oh. not help me <laughs> So, yes. yeah, so we've also, and it's also about, got to be careful with that. Like maybe we're comfortable with mm. – sorry. No, you keep going. It's great. You keep going. Maybe we're oh, comfortable. Well, it's, it's really interesting just with the anxiety. You know, sometimes even though we say we crave comfort and we try to avoid discomfort, the discomfort that we know is often more comfortable <laughs> than the comfort yes. we might experience if we were try, to try something new. Absolutely. And that absence of panic, you know, the absence of panic to stop fueling us like a petrol, which um, is exactly what you're talking about there. And having the sense of mind to just go, there's chaos all around me and all the signs are pointing to uncertainty, but I'm here and I'm fine in this moment. And it's actually each moment that matters. And within each moment, you get to the next moment and the next moment brings you to a solution of sorts. So it's about being conscious of those steps. It sounds like you practice mindfulness, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I'm very new to it though. I have to say like the last two years I've really focused on meditation and that I've noticed it. It's funny because for me I have a really regular half-hour meditation practice a day. I do 15 in the morning and 15 at night religiously um, and have done for two years. Um, and what I have always – I've sort of compartmentalised that practice and gone, oh, that's just what I – that's just – how I meditate, but I have found 
that all of a sudden other it, it is emerging in other parts of my life like magic. I'm like, how am I doing? Why am I? How am I problem solving that? Oh, that's that's where the might. You know, sometimes you think if you do a particular practice like yoga or meditation, you don't you don't necessarily think that that's going to have an effect on your whole life, but actually over time it does. It's seeped into everything. It's it's almost like it's doing it for you. It's cumulative. I, I would agree with you. And um, I don't know if you ever listened to Dan Harris's 10% Happier podcast, but everyone jokes I with him about, it. you know, the fact that he's sort of named it 10%. And, and, uh, and of course, it's, it's more than 10% because it's 10% each year. <laughs> um, yes. But in the beginning, it can be stressful because, because you're suddenly aware, um, even, I mean, I write about it in the book, that I was aware of my thoughts in high-stress moments but I didn't realize that I had this constant chatter in my mind 24-7. Yes. And so yeah. that was quite a surprise. And and then, you know, the next thing was when I finally, um, I then moved from my, I did my life coaching course, but then, of course, went into, decided to be the mindfulness teacher and started with, as we all have to in Australia, if you're going to be a, a mindfulness teacher through the Mindfulness Training Institute of Australia, you start with the eight-week MBSR course, which I've non, now done twice. Um, but the, um, the, then the, the pain that I had to feel, which is a bit of a joke, but I started, sat, laid down for a body scan and couldn't feel anything in my body. And so that became really interesting. Like, wow, why? And I think we don't, we talk about mindfulness and we talk about compassion, but curiosity is a really wonderful skill to cultivate because, you know, it's been said not by many people that when curiosity is present, fear is absent. Because if you think about curiosity, it's this beautiful sort of open kind of feeling like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. What if I did this? And so you're actually open to exploring ideas, whereas fear, of course, is a contracted state. So if we are feeling panicked, then one of the quickest or best, thing, one of the easiest solutions is to actually stop. And yes, you can go to the breath, but you can actually sort of go, what's going on? And the moment that you say, oh, what's going on for me here? What's happening in my body? What are the thoughts that are going on? What are the emotions that I'm feeling? Then you actually do then create a different sort of space. You might not go to the breath, but it's that capacity to go, whoa, I'm feeling really unpleasant. What's, what's happening in my body? What's happening in my mind? What's happening in my heart? Ah, okay. That's really interesting. I'm telling that story. Hmm. And of course, everything that happens in this moment is generally related to causes and conditions that you might, you might have laid down that habit of mind, you know, back when you were 10 and didn't even realize it. So the beauty of mindfulness, again, is that capacity to go, ah, I might have felt that when I was 10, but I'm okay right now in this moment, as you say, moment to moment, right here, right now, I'm safe, I'm resourced, I'm connected. So beautiful, and I think that's a lovely place to stop. But before we say goodbye to you, I wanted to know, I mean, what is uh, you running your own business yourself? What's sort of a non-negotiable for you when it comes to your wellness? I mean, as well in addition to mindfulness, but is there a particular thing that you have to do every day? Are you an exerciser? Are you a, um, a journal writer? I never, are you all no, of the above? <laughs> no, I do all of that. <laughs> I do exercise. Yep. I've never – exercise is like cleaning my teeth. You know, I just – it's just – <laughs> I feel horrible if I don't do it. That's a habit yeah. since I was a little girl. Um, I um, I think listening to music is that also something that's really important. And, you know, even though it's not for my age group, I listen to Triple J a lot because I've got a teenager, number one, 
But I love the fact that they are always linking everything to a song and a great time that they had. And, or uh, it can be, sometimes it can be a poignant time, but, um, one of the things that we do when we're really stressed is, of course, our attentional resources just, um, contract right into that thing that, um, is stressing us as opposed to being able to open out. And so listening to music, listening to stories, remembering for myself, you know, and the time that I went dancing and stuff like it keeps me, I find open and sort of young. And of course, um, um, just hugging my husband. <laughs> Staying very close to him, holding hands. Um, but, you know, at the moment, one of the things that I'm really focusing on is um, because we're washing our hands so much, there have been a lot of, you know, tips, sing, you know, sing happy birthday or um, a really nice one is to offer those loving kindness phrases, may I be healthy or may all beings be healthy, may all beings be happy, may all beings be safe. But I think that, again, if it's that idea of coming back into the body, the most constructive thing for me is to really pay attention to the sensations of washing your hands because it's mm. we're doing it so often it can become a habit really quickly and we'll just go straight into autopilot you know a bit like tying your shoelaces or driving a car you can get there without even knowing you know paying attention to how you drove there um so if we can stay connected for 20 minutes to the feeling of our hands washing one hand, washing the other, the sensations of our skin, then that also helps the soothing system to be in control. The oxytocin is released and that settles the system and actually inhibits the production of cortisol. So I'm really trying to or making sure that I don't turn washing my hands into an autopilot action. Mm, that's a great one. They're all amazing tips. Now, Lisa, for your book, we'll put lots of um, pointers to where people um can buy it but is there a is there a website of yours that we can go to or is it best just to jump on to sites like alan unwin or booktopia to purchase where's the best place to go booktopia uh Bicto- booktopia is um is doing pre-orders it um it um is published on march 31st so there'll be pre-orders until march 30th if you go to my uh instagram page at the lisa forest there is a link there to um, the Booktopia site and to that page. Uh, and then once, um, you know, once it's published, um, I would say support your local bookseller <laughs> at times like this. Wonderful. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us. And I know that everybody will get a lot out of your book and I hope we can have you back on the podcast again soon. 